Last month, our two guests in the conversation you're about to hear co-authored a lead piece in Foreign Policy magazine. Erdogan should not erase Turkey's Christian past, their article is titled. In short, Mustafa Akyol and Richard Reeves argue that the domestic nationalist politics in Turkey right now are at least a substantial factor. There, an authoritarian Rashid Tayyip Erdogan, Istanbul's mayor for four years in the 1990s, and now Turkey's national leader since 2003, first as prime minister and now as president, needs to survive corruption charges. And the creation of two far-right parties that could chip away at his religious base was a threat. So despite his own different commitments two years ago and harsh criticism about this move from both the Pope and the spiritual leader of the Eastern Orthodox Church, Erdogan and Turkey's high court gave Muslim hardliners a win in converting on July 24th, a building with an incredible history. The Church of the Hagia Sophia, or Holy Wisdom, was first built in 350 AD, completed in 537 in its present structure, converted into a mosque when the Ottomans took over the city in 1453, made into a museum in 1934 by Kemal Ataturk, the first president of a secular modern Republic of Turkey, but now converted or reconverted into a mosque following a 15-year judicial appeal. Is this a step backwards? Mustafa argues yes. He is the senior fellow on Islam and modernity at the Cato Institute, in addition to being a New York Times opinion writer and the author of two fascinating books, The Islamic Jesus and Islam Without Extremes, both linked in the show notes. But the story isn't fully written, he argues, together with Dr. Richard Reeves, Richard is the author of six books and a senior fellow at Brookings, where he currently directs an initiative on the future of the middle class, as well as the institution's Center on Children and Families. The dialogue he engages with Mustafa is, partly, about Turkish politics and the historic moment in that democratic country of 84 million people, at least 98% of which are Muslim. But perhaps the deeper, yet unanswered question is a religious one and the one Mustafa writes about in his July 20th New York Times piece, which we'd highly recommend in the show notes. Would the Prophet Muhammad convert the Hagia Sophia? He says no way, and explains why. And it's a deeply consequential argument, especially in a post-9-11 world. Mustafa helps both Westerners and fellow Muslims see that the Quran honors religious pluralism. Quote, mentioning churches monasteries, and synagogues by name only once, and doing so in a reverential tone. Despite imperialist conquests by Christians and Muslims alike, Muhammad's second successor, Caliph Omar, consistently respected church buildings, saying of Christians, their churches shall not be taken for residence, nor demolished, nor shall their crosses be removed. So to ask the seven billion person question, is there a case for true pluralism rooted within each great religion's tradition itself? Taking the long view, if we're going to avoid a clash of civilizations, it could be that political decisions like Erdogan's are less important than the instruction found within religious faith. That comes out today, as Mustafa and Richard suggest that the future need not be zero-sum, and that lasting tolerance, mutual respect, and even love are values that lie not in politics alone, but in sacred texts, in congregations, 
and ultimately within. Enjoy the conversation. Masafa, I'm really looking forward to this conversation, having worked with you and read your work on this issue. Can you just, for the the sake of everyone that's listening, tell us what we're talking about here? What is the Hagia Sophia? What's the history? Why are we suddenly talking about this building that's been around for so long? What is it and why is it so important? Sure, Richard. Um, Thank you and thanks for the panel. Hagia Sophia is undoubtedly one of the most spectacular, significant buildings on the face of the earth. It was built by the Byzantine Empire, which is Eastern Roman Empire, in the 6th century. And at that time, and for the next 900 years, it was the greatest cathedral, Christian cathedral in the world. And it was briefly converted into a Catholic cathedral during the Crusades, but then it reverted back. And for Eastern Christianity, that is the most significant temple, shrine, church, you know, that they connect themselves to. However, history changed and the Ottoman Empire conquered Constantinople in 1453. And soon after, the Ottomans, under Fatih Mehmet II, you know, the sultan, they decided to convert Hagia Sophia into a mosque and it became a mosque. They didn't convert every church, I should say that. I mean, they didn't touch many things, and they allowed Christians to worship. So for that time, that was a generous thing. But as the right of conquest, as they called it in that, in that day and age, they converted Hagia Sophia and a few other spectacular churches into mosques. Then for the next five centuries, Hagia Sophia was the most important mosque for the Ottoman Empire. The sultans, as the caliph, you know, would come and lead the prayer or be a part of the prayer. Then came another era in world history, that is Republican secular Turkey under Ataturk, Turkey's founder. And he, in 1934, decided to convert the building into a museum now, in which the images of Jesus and Mary can come back now to the surface because they were covered with whitewash under the Ottomans. Not because Muslims disrespect Jesus or Mary, but Islam has a very strict sense of not allowing images, you know, in a place of worship, like Judaism in that sense. So they were covered for that sense for a long time. I mean, actually in the Ottoman Empire, sometimes they were visible, sometimes they were, it's not very strict there. Historians are pointing to those nuances. But ultimately under Ataturk, it became a museum. However, for Turkey's more conservative Islamic circles, Hardcore Islamists, even mild conservatives who still longed for the Ottoman past, this was an attack on their faith. And, you know, Ataturk's Kemalism, I mean, secularism had some actually excesses indeed, you know, as I've emphasized a few times. It was a very French inspired secularism rather than a Jeffersonian one or a, I should say US style one. So it had some excesses. So conservatives saw this as an intrusion to their religious tradition. And reopening Hagia Sophia was a great dream for Islamists. And ultimately, Erdogan, who is reversing a lot of things in the Kemalist era in Turkey, now finally has come to the point, okay, I'll do this as well. Like it, the Islamist bucket list, you know, as someone in Turkey recently called. So this is something they wanted to do. And Erdogan is telling to his people, now I'm doing this for you. So don't forget it. I'm your savior, politically speaking. And 
I knew that this was coming. I mean, I, I'm Turkish myself. I've written in the Turkish media for two decades until like four or five years ago when Turkish media greatly became government media. And, you know, that's a different story. But I've written columns about this back in 2016 in a Turkish newspaper, Turkish language paper, then in Huria Daily News a few times in English language, but printed in Istanbul. I said, I knew Agazofia will be probably opened at some point to worship because we're overcoming some of the secular, strict secularism of the past. But it would be unfair to open it only for Muslims. We can share it. We can open it for Christians as well. And I know it's difficult, but it's not impossible. Right. Uh, you can share time and space in the building, and there are some precedents for that in early Islams. So for me, that is also very important because I look at, into it from an Islamic point of view as well. And then we actually co-authored a piece like that on that, reviving that call again a month ago. But it didn't go well, you know, in Turkey, you know, by some people who are trying to. No, I'm sorry. I'm, yeah. I'm sorry about that, Mustafa. Yeah, that's OK. That. That's OK. I mean, <laughs> whenever you write something critical in Turkey, you have the potential to be demonized as a traitor, which happened again after this piece. So ultimately, Erdogan is now reopening Hagia Sophia as a mosque. Now, is this the end of the world? To some extent, not. It was a museum. You can say now Muslims will be worshipping in it. It was a mosque. So they are just reviving their mosque. No problem with that. However, this will have an impact on the Christian heritage. Right in the first day, you know, the Turkish authorities put curtains over Christ and Mary and all the Christian other images in the building, uh, angels and seraphim and saints. And they say they will be open and closed during the time prayer time and not. Still, tourists are welcome, so people can still walk in. But I think the Christian heritage of the building will be concealed to a large extent. And this is not the ideal pluralistic solution that I wanted to see and I advocated for, that we advocated for with you, Richard. Yeah. But pluralism is not a very popular idea in Turkey these days <laughs> in, in any sense of the word. No. Uh, there's a very strong religious nationalism. President Erdogan is politically surfing on it, to be honest. And, and this is a move that signifies that. I think all of that's right. And I think the understanding the deep history of the building is very important before we think about the contemporary significance, right? We're recording this just days after the first prayers, Friday prayers have been said in the Hagia Sophia. But, you know, one and a half thousand years of continuous worship, Eastern Orthodox, and you say briefly Roman Catholic after the disastrous sacking of Constantinople by the Crusaders, and then there's a mosque for nearly half a millennium. And so this is extraordinary history, but also this very contested space, right? There was this conquest, as you say, many churches. It was, it, I think it's important to say that it was quite normal as well to turn churches into mosques, and not all of them were, but that wasn't, that wasn't unusual. So Hagia Sophia wasn't singled out in any by any means. It was quite common. But even, you know, ever since, and then with the sort of secularization, that was an attempt, I think, to kind of create this truce almost, you know, secularize it, and it'll take the heat out of it unsuccessfully. I think I read somewhere even that a Greek priest sort of snuck in after World War One and quickly said a divine liturgy, right, before being chased out by Muslims. It was even reported, I couldn't quite source this, that the Allies after World War One considered demolishing the building just to take it away as a source of conflict. So I think it's very important we understand kind of how deep this history is. Now, I visited 
last year as a relatively newly converted Orthodox Christian and and read a great deal about the history. There's this a myth in Orthodox history that the priests disappeared into the walls of the building and they will come back out again when Constantinople comes back into Christian hands, right? So there's a strong sense on on both sides. So I do think that kind of history is very important. And it was the largest cathedral for a thousand years. And I think especially to Eastern Orthodox Christians, its its significance is really hard to overstate. And so there's this period of kind of between the faiths, then secularization, and quite an aggressive secularization. And it sort of feels now as if it feels like in Turkey, but maybe we can speak more broadly about this. Sometimes the choice seems to be between a kind of very narrow secular view of liberalism and a kind of very narrow, more fundamentalist view of religion, whether that's Muslim or Christian, and that sort of pluralistic ground in the middle, which is respectful of religion without giving priority to one religion, really seems to be, you know, on the down, not most obviously places like Turkey, but maybe more broadly, right? You're either religious or you're secular from this point of view. This idea of being a religious pluralist is is a difficult one, Mustafa, but you've you've talked a lot about that. And also, I love your precedents. I'd love you to talk a bit more about the precedence of sharing space, which is, if you like, a very concrete, very concrete way to think about that pluralism. You're right. In Turkish, the word for secular is laïc. It comes from laïcité, from France. I mean, the Muslim world got exposed to modernity mainly through France. The French culture, the French language was the lingua franca, you know, in, in among Ottoman or Arab intellectuals. And and I think that brought a tension between religion and liberalism or secularism, whereas I think the Anglo-Saxon way became less emphasized. And I'm actually one of the people who's emphasizing that. Okay, there's another way right. to do this, right? It doesn't <laughs> yeah. have to be authoritarian in, in one of the ways, and there are better histories out there. Anyway, that's so interesting. Thing. I just want to come to the history, but I think that point is crucial that there's a, a sort of f- a French view of secularism because the French Enlightenment was very strongly against religion. It saw religion as issue. That's why in France you saw bans on the hijab in schools, for example. You would never, you never saw that in England, right? You wouldn't see that, right? So in that sense, you know, England was much more Republican in the proper sense of the term, than, than France. And so, so it's very interesting for me to kind of draw that line between that very secular anti-enlightenment, French enlightenment thinking and Turkey. Yeah, and I think these illiberal expressions of modernity gave bad name to modernity or the West in general in the Muslim world, and there are still deep roots for that. And, and I'm trying to go against the tide on that. I mean, sp- writing more about freedom as an idea compatible with religion, freedom of religion, only not just from religion. But, you know, this has been historical experience. Another point is that conversion of churches took place under the Ottomans. Conversion of mosques into churches also took place a lot when the Ottomans retreated from the Balkans in the 19th century, even during the Serbian aggression against Bosnians in the genocide attempt in the 90s. So there are Balkan nationalisms as well. It happened in Spain, for sure, when the Muslims retreated, where they were expelled from Spain and Cordoba. And in Turkey today, if you look into public debates about Hagia Sophia, you will see a lot of lot of whataboutism. They will say, oh, you're criticizing us on Hagia Sophia. What about the Ottoman mosques in Bulgaria? What about the Ottoman mosques in Greece? And I'm saying, well, exactly. That is a problem on both sides. And let's let's not just use this as a, you know, reason to continue the problem, but try to fix the problem and ask for 
a better solution there as well. But you know, it's the way it is. It's it's the way it is working. Yes, it's not the, the argument that two wrongs don't make a right. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. You're right, but you know, a lot of people think they do make right. And anyway, so to come back to the point, let's leave aside Turkey for a second. What does Islam say about churches, you know, or synagogues or places of worship of other religions? Now, some Westerners might assume that if they haven't, they haven't looked into carefully into the history of Islam and they see the radicalism, extremism in the name of Islam today, which is obviously a big problem, they might assume that, oh, Muslims come and destroy, of course, Christians' places of worship. You know, that's what I have done for 14 centuries. Well, not really. I mean, it's not that simple. Islam, uh, as I explained in the, tried to explain shortly in the New York Times article a week ago, Islam was born as a monotheistic religion. And on the one hand, it criticized Jews and Christians for certain things. There's a tension between Muslims and Jews and Christians right there in the Quran. But on the other hand, Islam, the Quran, and later Islamic tradition, recognized the legitimacy of Judaism and Christianity. That's why Islam wiped out Arab paganism so there was not a religious freedom given to them at that point. But Christians and Jews were tolerated to preserve their places of worship, at the very least, in Islamic lands to a great extent. And the best example of that is Jerusalem. I mean, people go today, visit Jerusalem. Probably few of them think that this city was under Muslim rule from the 7th century to the early 20th century, with a brief exception of Crusaders. And the Church of Holus Sepulchre is still there. Other Christian churches are still there. They have not been converted. Because when Caliph Umar took Jerusalem five years after Prophet Muhammad, he signed a treaty with the Christians saying that your churches and crosses will not be touched. We have treaties between Prophet Muhammad and the Christians of his era, of his time and milieu, in which he says your churches will not be touched. And those churches remained. And some were later destroyed, and how that happened is a big story, I mean, big dispute. Some people thought that the prophet Seder later said something which abrogates the earlier rules, and there was also an argument about taking places with conquest versus treaties. But at the end of the day, churches have remained in the Middle East, in Egypt, in Palestine, in Syria, and converting churches into mosques was a disputed issue. The Hanafi school allowed that. Shafis and Hanbalis didn't fully allow that. Some of them disputed this because there is no basis for that in the Quran. The Quran mentions churches only once and with respect. We know Prophet Muhammad didn't convert any church. He converted the Kaaba, but that was a pagan shrine and it was his city in the first place. So that's a different story. So even from an Islamic point of view, you can say that actually we should not have touched the places of worship of Christians. And there are some people in Turkey, some let's say more liberal progressive Islamists, Islamic thinkers, let's say. A few of them said, let's give it back to the Christians, actually, which is not going to happen. You know, I mean, that's, that's a very idealistic but not realistic goal. But so I just wanted to bring that angle. And I think the issue for Muslims as today, and I think for other religious traditions, is that these conquests happened. I mean, the Ottomans conquered a lot of places, to, from almost to Vienna, early Islamic conquests. Were they really a requirement of our religion? They were blessed by our fate? Or were they just facts of history? History of Christianity includes imperialism. I mean, Roman Empire, right? There was a Holy Roman Empire, conquest of Latin America and all that. 
But did they happen as history of Christians, a 2,000-year-long history with a lot of complex themes? Or did this happen as a requirement of the faith, as blessed by the faith? And I think today most Christians will say, it's history. Actually, it was wrong, but, you know, it happened. Today, some Muslims think like that in terms of these Islamic conquests, but others think it was mandated by God. It was divinely blessed, and it was the right thing to do. So we see still a a glorification of the national conquest. And one of the things that concerns me in this whole Hagia Sophia affair is the notion of conquest comes back to the fore again. I see, well, it happened, but I would respect the Ottomans for giving Christians religious freedom for that time, you know, rather than no religious freedom. But, you know, conquest is conquest. I mean, where, but there are, there's a hadith attributed to Prophet Muhammad. It says the conqueror of uh, Istanbul, how he blessed he is and so on and so forth. Whereas others, you know, dispute the authenticity of this. In other words, from an Islamic point of view, there are layers and layers in this to think about. And I should say that Muslim opinions on this are diverse. There is a more orthodox opinion, which glorifies conquest and taking back and believes in the supremacy of Islam that will be exemplified also by political and even military success. Whereas people like me would say, well, if Islam is supreme, let's write about it. <laughs> let's exemplify it, but not through power. And that distinction is there in the heart of Islam. It's there among Muslim discussions today about this matter. And, you know, it's interesting. I thought that was a place where I think you guys together in your piece, certainly yours, Mustafa and the Times, draw out the story of Caliph Omar in 637, 638. And I guess this throwing of the stone, as the legend has it, that he would go not to pray in the in the church of the Holy Sepulchre, but he'll go a short distance away where a mosque could then in the time in the future be, be built. I guess I found it really interesting that you made the case, as you did, not primarily or alone to New York Times readers, and there are a lot of them, right? There's uh, doing the math, 3.8 million digital subscribers today and 900,000 print subscribers today, but to uh, the question of what would the, the Prophet Muhammad say? Would he convert the Hagia Sophia? Well, of course, there you're up to, uh, you know, 1.9 billion Muslims, vastly different. I, you know, drawing that out a little bit, if you're going to make a religious case for religious pluralism, what is there additionally in the Quran that supports the argument that you are making here? That's a very good topic, you know, and in, in my forthcoming book, Reappearing Muslim Minds, A Return to Freedom, Reason, and Tolerance, I, I get into these issues in detail. If you read the Quran, and a lot of people do, of course, right, you will come across passages that say, to you, your religion, to me, my religion. You will read a passage which says there is no compulsion in religion. You will see messages of toleration and brotherhood to Jews and Christians. But then you will read other passages which will say, fight the unbelievers, right? And smite their necks. And there are some belligerent passages about war. It's a bit like the Old Testament, you know, like you read the book of Joshua and you will see some passages that are pretty harsh. But then there are other passages. And it depends how Muslims take them. And a lot of people quote and say, this is the real message of Islam. They can choose a very militant passage and say, this is what their religion is. You know, they're so horrible and violent. Al-Qaeda will love that passage too, because it's their understanding of Islam, but it's more complicated. So, however, this is what happened. In early Islam, 
Muslims were first a persecuted minority in Mecca. And a lot of messages about to you, your religion, to me, my religion came in Mecca. They were almost being killed, Prophet Muhammad, and he fled to Medina. There, he established a state. That state ultimately had an army, and that army had fights, battles, three, four battles with the pagans, and a few other conflicts with a Jewish tribe, several Jewish tribes in Mecca, which to me were political conflicts. They had to survive. They established a state. That state required self-defense and so on and so forth. And the belligerent passages about subduing the enemy, fighting them until they're subdued, to me and to Muslims who think like me in this issue, show, well, Prophet Muhammad at that point had to have that war, so it was contextual. But, however, the later Islamic tradition took those belligerent verses as definitive and the earlier verses as passé, basically. The theory of abrogation, it's called. They said the later verses abrogate the earlier ones. Not everybody agreed with this. Others said, others believed in not abrogation, but tahsis, which means specification. They said, this verse is about war because they were attacked in the first place, but the norm is peace. So there are people who say that in the early Islamic exegeses as well. However, the more dominant view became conquest is normal. It's blessed and you should open war. You can go conquer any territory. You give them the choice of converting into Islam or accepting Muslim supremacy, or you fight them and kill them and enslave them. So the, this was the classical Sunni jurisprudence. Now, not all Muslims believe in this today. Quite a few Muslims, especially modernists, and even, even some more reasonable conservatives will say, that was the historical experience, and Muslims understood it that way. Because at that time, in 7th century Arabia, there was no international law. There was no United Nations, you know. There was no religious freedom you could find under a Christian state. The world has changed dramatically, so we have to change these issues. But there are others who think it was the right thing, and it's still somehow valid for today. And few people would try to engage in conquest today, taking new territories. But if they glorify that old concept, not as something as a product of history, but as a divinely blessed blueprint for mankind and, and Muslims, then that, that's a different perception. So the short answer to your question is that even those Muslim conquests allowed churches to remain in some cases. So that is even very impressive. But I do question the very notion of conquest, and I see it as a historical experience of Muslims, but not as a fulfilling of the values of Islam. It's very interesting to think about this idea of conquest, because that's necessarily zero sum. And if you think about Hagia Sophia as a space, right, there's a competition over the space. So it's Eastern Orthodox, but then the Roman Catholics come along and take it. And by the way, treat the building terribly, sack the building in the 13th century, whereas, you know, once we saw Constantinople being taken by the Ottoman Empire, treated very respectfully. And as you say, some churches were granted the freedom to continue worshipping within Constantinople. But it occurs to me that this idea of conquest as zero sum is almost analogous to the idea of conversion. In the same way that there's a contest over the physical space, there's a contest over the mind space. 
it's you're with us or against us. Mine is the one true faith, so you're either with me or against me. The same zero-sum thinking that leads to buildings and places only being one or the other, whereas you and I must have to think could be shared, is similar, I think, to the way we think about societies. And one of the features of Anglo-Saxon liberalism, I should say that I'm John Stuart Mill's biographer at this point, (laughs) is a recognition that one of the reasons for pluralism is religion, precisely because people do have very strong religious faiths, in many cases, and very different ones. You have to construct societies in a way that allows for that. And so Mill famously, for example, thought that the Americans should leave the Mormons alone. There was this big moral panic about polygamy, right? We have to stop them doing that, right? And drive them out of Utah, which in the end, the US successfully did. But Mill was like, leave them alone. As long as people can leave, if it's a choice, leave them alone. And I think that's because Mill and like his modern equivalents like Bill Goldston, my Brookings colleague and so on, one of the arguments for liberal pluralism as opposed to liberal secularism is precisely that it accommodates different religious views rather than a winner-takes-all view. And so in that sense, the physical conquest is equivalent to the theological mindset, which is, can also be conquering. Would you agree with that, Mustafa? I mean, I would totally agree with that. And the, the Mormon analogy is kind of similar to the discussion about Ahmadis in Pakistan today, if you've been following that. Ahmadis, in a very simple sense, are the Mormons of Islam. <laughs> they are Muslims, but they believe in a 19th century prophet as an additional figure. Ah, yes. And other Muslims think, I don't think you know it's correct either, but for other Muslims, this makes them kafir somehow, infidel, and out of the boundaries of Islam. And in Pakistan, they wrote in the constitution that Ahmadis are not Muslim. I mean, being an Ahmadi, and if, you, and if you're an Ahmadi and if you call so- yourself Muslim, you would be legally in trouble in Pakistan. There has been attacks and so on and so forth. So it is very similar to the discussions about Mormons back then, you know, I think, when John Stuart Mill was writing about this. I think they didn't write in the constitution that Ahmadis are non-Muslims, but they wrote a clause which implies that. Anyway, that's a different, more detailed t- topic. But... Here's one thing. I think every religious believer, most of them at least, believe that their religion is the true one, right? I mean, why you believe in it otherwise? (laughs) I think that there should be a healthy doubt about that in the sense that it's truth, but still I can't fully reach it. But anyway, still you are a Christian because you believe Christianity is true. Now, the crucial question here is that, therefore, should the public authority uphold your belief and punish deviations from it or impose it or proclaim it somehow uphold it right and this not was not an easy question and for i mean in much of human history everybody said of course yes i mean that's why we have i don't know inquisition burning people at the stakes and john locke when i read john locke for the first time 15 years ago i said wow this guy was speaking about our problem today right, in the Muslim world. I mean, he's saying, actually, the state shouldn't even... So this was a problem for Christians, too. I mean, oh, yeah, it was. And I think in the Muslim world today, it's diverse. There are people who accept a more John Lockean approach. But I should be honest and say that large majorities in many, not all, but many Muslim-majority countries would think that the state, of course, should promote Islam. The state should be Islamic. Otherwise, what? The state should be at the hands of infidels? I mean, if it is not Islamic, it's necessarily something dark and dangerous. 
Whereas, you know, it could be neutral and that neutrality good for, can be good for everybody. I mean, that argument has to be still won in the Muslim world. In some Muslim societies, you know, there's a trend towards that and there's a greater appreciation of that, but in others, not. Even in Turkey, that's contested. And now we're seeing that contest is, you know, tilting towards a certain direction. I wonder, Mustafa, if you could speak to that a little more in the Muslim-majority world. You know, there are 45 to 50 Muslim-majority countries today. 20 years ago, remember, Turkey was considered a beacon a bit, a secular democracy, an example for many other countries, Indonesia. But today, obviously, looks very different. And the two of you have written a piece together in Foreign Policy that talks about this and says effectively that at least a good portion of this is Erdogan's own political challenges, the fact that he's consolidating people in the more rural spaces, the nationalist element, the more politically conservative, religious conservative cohort. Is that what he's doing? Is Erdogan effectively using the religious impulse that exists amongst more, let's say, religious Muslims? What was the numbers? I remember it was 99.8%. Muslim country, some say as little as 96%, but it's, it's very up there. But a lot is secular, right? But there's a religious cohort, and he's sort of trying to draw that out. Richard was describing earlier Turkey and laicite, and we shouldn't forget that Marie Le Pen took, what was it, 24% of the vote, even in that very secular setting. Orban has just won using, uh, in part, religion and nationalism to do so. Austria, on it goes, right? So there's a big trend in a sort of secularized setting like Turkey to use religion for your own electoral political benefit, maybe even here, one could say. So is, is that what's happening? Can I just add to that, Josh? Because we should add Modi. We should add Vladimir Putin wearing the Orthodox cross. We should add Donald Trump holding up the Bible uh, in front of a church. So I think that the list goes on and on. Yeah, I mean, religious nationalism is a popular force in the world these days. And I think Muslims understand that it's a bad thing when they're a minority. (laughs) Like in India, Muslims understand that religious nationalism and a majoritarian democracy is a bad thing. And I'm saying this is a great lesson from India. Let's just, you know, expand it to other own countries, majority countries as well. Or when there are, you know, minorities in the West and so on and so forth. And I think that's true for everybody. I mean, people look into their own issues normally. I mean, that's a very valid point. Also, I'm glad you mentioned the word nationalism because... A lot of the problems in the Muslim world are sometimes driven by nationalism, which is not always exactly the same thing with religious conservatism or Islamism. Uh, Let's not forget that Turkey wiped out much of its Armenian population in 1915, not because of Islam, but because of nationalism, because Armenians were under the Ottoman Empire safely for five centuries before that. And 1915 was a time when secular nationalisms, Turkish nationalism and others, came to the fore and had a clash with each other and Armenian became the victim. So, And in Turkey, too, in the pre-Erdogan era, Christian minorities sometimes suffered because of nationalism. The conflict with Greece over Cyprus made Greeks in Istanbul a target because they're Greeks. The issue was not Christianity as such. So it's complicated. But coming to your point on question on Erdogan, yes, I mean, Erdogan is certainly pushing a narrative of religious nationalism. He's making Turkey great and Muslim again, you know, as, as I put, I mean, his political narrative. It was different. When in his earlier years, his narrative was about making Turkey a member of the European Union, bringing freedom for everybody, including Kurds, including minorities, 
and correcting the mistakes of the old regime and, and all that, even Alevi's, uh, you know, minority in Turkey, everything. But all that success story of Erdogan growingly crumbled and economy was a big part of it. And he retreated back to his ideological camp. And that ideological camp is certainly something like 35% of Turkish society, maybe 35, 40% heavily conservative. I mean, hardcore Islamists or really very traditional people who want the flag and the mosque and everything to be united under a great leader and who don't care much about concepts like freedom of speech or free social media or things like that. And you would find those people voting for Orban in Hungary, or you would find some of those people wanting a wall with Mexico and, you know, thinking about those things in some parts of the U.S. without little caring about what this means for the quality of democracy in that country and so on and so forth. So, yes, Erdogan is pushing that. And I don't think at the end of this, Turkey will be another Saudi Arabia or Iran where Sharia is the law of the land. That is too far of a stretch. I mean, I don't think that's going to happen in any foreseeable future. But Turkey is becoming not like Iran or Saudi Arabia, but more like Russia, honestly, where you have an autocratic leader. He's glorified as the embodiment of the nation and his critics are seen as traitors to the nation. I mean, the church is behind Putin very much. So Putin himself is not religious, but there's a like orthodoxy there. Erdogan himself is religious, so maybe there's one more heavy dose there. So it's becoming this kind of an autocratic system sustained by popular support. But of course, how long that popular support will go is a good question. Erdogan certainly has a solid 35 40% that will vote for him no matter what. No way that they will not vote for him. However, that might not be enough to keep elections going. So these are questions in Erdogan's term. And this is happening because Turkey's religious conservatives are living through a revolutionary era. I mean, they're finally coming back to power after decades and decades of being sidelined. So there's this revolutionary euphoria and zeal and, and corruption and everything, newfound power and you know, intoxication, intoxication with that. At the end of which, Turkey may really go to a very dark point. I hope not. Or this might go down as an excess, as a re reaction to Kemalism, laicite. And at the end of which, Turkey might come to its senses and have a more pluralistic, liberal democracy. I hope for that. I think we should all work for that. And regarding Islam, it is true that today, some of the issues that are settled in Western Christianity, that people should not be killed for apostasy or those things are not yet settled in Islam, so we're working on those issues. But we should know that these were issues even for Christians too, I mean, until a few centuries ago. Yes, I, actually, a couple of things. I love what you said there, Mustafa. I loved the distinction between the leaders using the imagery of religion, Putin and Trump, perhaps, and those who are actually religious. But it's very interesting too, and I think in your work, the way that you're drawing on history to make some of these arguments for pluralism. You know, we're in a period of history where we need that, where we need to look back. And I think that for liberals in particular, that's challenging because there's an assumption of a kind of natural march to progress, right? We'll become naturally more plural, naturally more tolerant, etc. And of course, history isn't like that. It's one step forward, a step back, maybe two steps. <laughs> and there's this kind of messiness to a kind of plural society. And very often what people want you know, from the French Enlightenment forces they want everything to be tidier 
right? And and life is not tidy. Religion is not tidy. You should rationally plan and manage. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. But like in the French, this is the French government saying that French children should study math at 10 a.m. every day in every school in the whole of France, right? It's that kind of, you know, this very annoying, the idea that they might be learning math at different times. And there is this kind of necessary sort of messiness and unpredictability to liberal societies that I think authoritarians of kind of all stripes don't like. And I, th- I also like the reminder that these are issues for Christians too, kind of historically looking back. And w- actually one of the little stories about Hagia Sophia that I like, which I think speaks to this is when you look at the mosaics, the beautiful mosaics, including the deusis mosaic in the Hagia Sophia that are now covered up, they've been badly damaged. Many of the tiles have been removed. So there's only a small a part of the mosaic left. And so Christians tend to think, well, that was the that was the Muslims. They must have damaged them. It was actually tourists from Western Europe visiting, being told by the Muslim guards where the hidden mosaics were, and they would chisel out a little tile to take home back to London or Paris or whatever. So it was Christians who damaged the mosaics. But the story of conquest, and of course that must have been the Muslims, is so easy to tell. Those sort of details are lost, and it was actually secular European tourists damaging, right? Whereas actually the Muslim, quotes conquerors were pretty respectful of Christianity. I think crusaders too did a lot of damage as well. Huge amount of damage. Huge. Yeah, the Roman Catholics, a huge amount of damage. There are incidents of crusaders killing Eastern Christians too. People miss that. I mean, absolutely, they saw them as yeah. heretics too. So, you know, 1204 was a bad year for I mean, Europe was not a very liberal place like eight <laughs> centuries ago. And, and it's, right. its Christian expressions were not terribly liberal too. Yeah. One more thing. I think as a Muslim, I'm proud of the fact that if you go back like five centuries ago, the Islamic world would actually, compared to Europe at the time, would look more tolerant. Jews were expelled from Spain. They came to the Ottoman Empire. And Jews had their golden era in the Ottoman Empire until the state of Israel. John Bowden says, in the great emperor of Turks, everybody can pray in their churches, and that's an amazing thing. And, you know, it wasn't there. Because Islam had this hierarchical but still tolerant view that Jews and Christians can worship and, you know, live there. But that was like five centuries ago. And even Muslim women had more rights, like property rights, than European women until a few centuries ago. What happened is that thanks to our friends John Locke and John Stuart Mill and, you know, this whole liberal tradition, things got much better in the West. And still there are issues we're working on, and obviously, but and the U.S. Constitution is a great example of that. That includes abolition of slavery and everything. The idea of equality before law and inclusion, I mean, that became the norm in the West. And the Islamic world either just preserved what it was five centuries ago, sometimes even got worse because of reactionary attitudes, because of this shock with modernity. I mean, Jewish communities in the Middle East were destroyed in the 20th century, until in the middle of the 20th century as a reaction to Israel. So there was less anti-Semitism, but the Muslim world became more anti-Semitic, whereas Europe you know, finally faced its ugly pass on that, I mean, after the Second World War. Which means, you know, religions or civilizations are not static. They can get worse or better, and we should work for them. And that's one reason I keep writing and trying to inject ideas in a big sphere of Muslim world out there. And it's not going to happen one day. But if you say this is what it is, it's not go- never going to change, and this is static. We're not being realistic, and we're being unfair, too. I think the two of you said, or maybe just you did, Mustafa, in a piece that diversity is just a fact— or you, diversity is a, a reality, but pluralism is an effort. 
I'm curious, maybe as an exit question, if you if you have any sort of forecast for what does come next. There's an election in 2023. Turkey moves nice and slow on on these large fronts. As you think about the big picture and what's uh, what's to come a decade or two from now, where do you see Turkey sitting? Well, that's something I'm curious about. <laughs> I mean, I I will see. President Erdogan, if he stays the course, he has actually three more years to go until 2023. That's why some people were surprised that he opened Hagia Sophia a bit early. You know, maybe it would help. But other people are saying now he'll build up on this. You know, this is the beginning of a new era where, and if Turkey goes through a worse economic decline and everything, he will have the right to say, not the right, but he will have the grounds to say, oh, this is happening because the infidels are attacking us because we opened Hagia Sophia. That kind of Maybe he won't personally say that, but his me- his media, his propaganda empire is full of narratives like that. I'm not sure how Turkey will end up. I'm slightly optimistic in the sense that President Erdogan's success is partly built on this religious nationalism, which is with him for no matter what, but also pragmatic success of the economy and so on and so forth. And that pragmatic success is largely vanished. And the more it goes down, the more it has an in- impact on the electorate. And ultimately, I think in Turkey, you cannot end up like Turkmenistan, where elections are just a joke and everybody knows that. I mean, Turkey at least has a tradition of elections, decent elections that goes back to almost a century. And I don't think President Erdogan can sustain his rule without big popular support. He will try, you know, he will do everything. Some people now he thinks will change the system again because he went to a presidential system. Now he's second thoughts because it's hard to get the 50 percent. He will go back to a parliamentary system. I mean, of course, in a normal country, you, this doesn't happen. People don't change the system in, in, according to how it fits them. But, you know, this is what it is in Turkey. But ultimately, he will try to. And I believe there will be a post-Erdogan Turkey at some point. And that post-Erdogan Turkey, hopefully, will get the lesson that before Erdogan, the laicite was too harsh and religious conservatives were suppressed. But then we saw the religious conservatives too, you know, their hegemony wasn't anything better because societies learn by experience. I mean, they don't learn by reading John Locke. I I wish they all did or, you know, John Stuart Mill, but they learn by experience what we theorize. So that's what I hope. And for that, I think Turkey should not be totally pushed to the Russia-China axis. And I think the institutional links between Turkey and the West should be sustained on a principled basis, of course, not cynical basis, because also Turkey's place in the world matters in these things as well. And I think one of the problems in Turkey is that it just not became less and less free and more autocratic. It also became more and more friendly to Russia and China, which is also another worrying sign. But it's not a process we should catalyze and you know push forward and forward. It's a process we should try to you know manage somehow. Thank you both so very much. Thanks, Mustafa. Thanks, Richard. Thank you. It was beautiful to talk to you. So good to listen to you. Faith Angle connects some of the world's best thinkers and journalists around religious questions that aren't going anywhere. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us a review and tell a friend.